You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today, because of the recent focus on intelligence and the terrorist incidents, both at Fort Hood, the Christmas Day bombing, and the uh, suicide uh, attack in Kost, we thought it might be interesting to draw somewhat on my background and experience in intelligence. As most of you know, I spent some 36 years in the intelligence field at CIA, most of which was in the clandestine services in the area of human. Uh, and I have certainly uh, tried to keep up with the field. And so, to draw on those experiences and that background, we've asked Dr. Thomas Bogart, our museum historian, who's been here some six years, to act as the interviewer. And I will sit in as the guest as we discuss these issues. Uh, Dr. Bogart uh, is uh, the author of Spies of the Kaiser and also has lectured and written frequently in the area of intelligence. So, Thomas? Well, thank you, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. Why don't we kick off with uh, President Obama's remarks that he made yesterday on uh, what he called the intelligence failure of failures, um, uh, our responses to these incidents. And let me just ask you, I'm sure you're familiar with his speech, what is your comment? Um, how well do you think Obama addressed these issues, and what is your personal comment on, um, on his analysis of uh, these incidents? Well, I'm sure there were intelligence officers all over this town and perhaps all over the world who were, were, were keenly interested in what the president would have to say uh, and how he would approach uh, these, these events which occurred in, in such, a, such a short sequence. Um, I think what was impressive to me was the fact that, uh, as he has done in other cases, he took the time to review exactly what had been done. He had reviews done, serious reviews. Uh, it was clear that he was uh, felt a degree of passion, indeed anger, uh, about uh, uh, what had happened, what he considered intelligence failures. 
And he addressed them in a way which I thought was extraordinarily professional. That is, that the suggestions that he made uh, based on those reviews and the advice of people like John Brennan and others were directed at precisely what the problems had been, these systemic failures. It was not a hunt for a scapegoat. It was, it was looking for why didn't this happen? Why, why, were, why were we not able to, uh, in the case of, uh, of the Christmas bombing, keep that individual, uh, Abdul Muttalib, from flying? I thought that uh, his approach also, uh, and that is reflecting his anger, that is certainly going to gra grab the attention of the intelligence community, I think in a very good way, because it reflects the president is engaged. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. It's not just saying this must never happen again, which of course is ridiculous because things do happen again. Nothing is perfect. I thought it was a very measured response in its way, and um, I think the intelligence community, particularly those affected uh, by the issues here, uh, are going to take his remarks seriously. I think they will respond. They'll get it. Uh, those are the words, I think, of uh, Dennis Blair, the DNI. And so uh, I, I thought it was a very powerful message, a well-directed message, and a one uh, that is going to have effect. Hmm. Now, I take it from your remarks that uh, you would agree that these two incidents at Coast and uh, Detroit were indeed intelligence failures. Would you say that that term, that terminology is ac accurate? I think, you know, we can, I mean, we can go back. We can, we can look at Pearl Harbor, we can look at 9-11, and we look at these incidents. All of them, because they happened, were failures. Something, something that might have been done was not done. And in these incidents, as, as, as he has approached them, uh, certainly the Christmas Day bombing and the suicide attack looked like uh, there were elements in them that reflected possibly failures in, in fundamental tradecraft, in the case of the uh, cost uh, bomber, uh, or uh, the system not working as it should in the case of allowing Abdul Muttalib to, to get on the plane. And those are the types of things that can be corrected. Can it be corrected to the point of view of perfection? No. But it can always be made better. The screws can always be tightened. Uh, people can be more nimble, more adept. Uh, the, the, the need for sharing, for pushing the information out, or as he has suggested, uh, assigning priorities and having people, as it were, uh, uh, bird dog these these very specific instances, like the Nigerian Abdul Muttalib's father coming in and saying uh, his son uh, his, thought his son had gone uh, had fallen among bad people. So I think he's uh, the, it's an incremental approach, but I think that's uh, that is the way to approach these problems. What emerges from the press when you read about these incidents, and especially um, about Umar Farouk um, Abdul Mutalabab, um, who um, was trying to blow up this plane as a suicide bomber, is that we actually had intelligence, and you mentioned this on him, that this was a dangerous person. If I recall correctly, he was indeed on some sort of list, not a no-fly list, but some sort of watch list. And um, as an intelligence officer, can you explain to us why we're not able to connect these dots. People are asking, you know, we have the intelligence, why didn't we act upon it? I think even, even the, the harshest critics uh, of intelligence acknowledge that 
in these days of, of amassing these databases of over half a million names and so forth, of having a variety of different databases, we are, we are awash in dots. And that is the problem, is you're dealing with global issues here. Now granted, uh, you can sharply, you can focus on certain things like who's coming to the United States, who's going to Great Britain, who's leaving certain countries, which we've now done. But the, the uh, uh, often uh, when we do this kind of Monday morning quarterbacking and, and we look back, it, it's, it's quite easy to connect the dots. Um, and in fact, in the case of uh, Abdul Mohammed, uh, as we know, when his father went into the uh, uh, embassy and spoke with a State Department official and a CIA official in Nigeria, uh, individual reports were sent back to the Counterterrorism Center and to the State Department, but they did not rise to the level of the criteria that had been set for putting them on that no-fly list. They did rise to the level that intelligence authorities uh, and law enforcement authorities planned to approach Abdul Muhammad uh, uh, Mutalib when he landed. He became a person of interest at that point. However, the plane was already in the air. So the dots were not connected quite quickly enough to get him on the no-fly list, but they certainly brought him to the attention of the authorities, and they were going to confront him when he landed. And yes, you can see a number of indicators. I mean, he, he paid for his uh, ticket in cash. He had no check-in uh, uh, luggage at all. There were a number of things you can now add up and say, gosh, these should have been connected. The answer to that is yes. And that's the systemic approach that I think the president is urging to be uh, beefed up is precisely how to go about it. One of the places, one of the countries that you read more and more about uh, in the press in connection with the so-called war on terror is Yemen. Um, Yemen as a center of inspiration for al-Qaeda, possibly as a training ground. We're trying to partner with the government of Yemen. Um, there were some drone strikes in Yemen. Um, and, and that's a new fact, I think, for many people. So far, it's been mostly Afghanistan. Can you comment on that and, and, and what you think, what kind of role Yemen plays and may play in the future um, for al-Qaeda and for our um, um, efforts to combat al-Qaeda? Well, Yemen is, a, is in some ways, a, as they used to say, a basket case. I believe it's considered the poorest country, Arab country, poorest of the Arab countries. Uh, it is fighting, I believe, a, a, a virtual civil war between the North and South. It's dealing with an insurgency. Uh, and now you have this element called al-Qaeda in, uh, in, in, in Yemen that has, that has grown up. Uh, I think made up uh, in some ways of people who had been in prison at, at Guantanamo and were released and went back and I believe for, formed the core of the Al-Qaeda leadership. I think for me, as much as anything, it highlights the cancerous nature of Al-Qaeda, the way it, it metastasizes. In other words, yes, we're going after it. There was, it was an Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then we went after it. We went after it there. We've gone after it in Afghanistan. Oops, now here it is over here in Yemen. And this is, of course, the, the core of so-called asymmetrical warfare, where, where you have a giant superpower like the United States confronting uh, people, you know, barely with, uh, with the means to clothe themselves in some cases, used to living in the, in the wild, and, uh, but forming the core of this, of this extremist uh, organization which is resorting to terror. And I think that is as much 
the lesson for me. So it's not something where we can say, oh, we'll do this, we'll, fr we'll, we'll put a fence around them in Afghanistan, we'll kill a lot, we'll do the same thing in Yemen. Where does it go next? And I think this is, this is what is so difficult, for, uh, so difficult a challenge for us to confront. And as we're seeing, uh, people, individuals in that movement are, also, are directing activities increasingly at and in the United States. And so I think that's uh, one of the, the scarier aspects of what we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think, incidentally, I think Osama bin Laden's family hails from Yemen. He's Saudi. He grew up in Saudi Arabia, but I think his family hails from which, which supports what you were that's just... That's correct. The roots, the roots go back to Yemen, yeah. Um, now, Bruce Hoffman, um, in a recent interview, said that he thinks th this war on terror, whatever you want to call it, will define... Uh, Obama's presidency um, as much as has defined Bush, whether he likes it or not, um, sort of a large, broad statement. And uh, I realize, you know, this is, a, this is sort of a larger question, a difficult question. Would you agree with that? Are we going to deal with al-Qaeda for many years to come? It, it seemed until we had these two incidents that the threat has receded, but now it seems like it's pretty much back on the forefront. Is, just, is this just a blip, um, or is this going to be an ongoing process that we have to deal with? I don't think it's a blip. Um, uh, part of what uh, Obama has inherited, simply because the, it's the way the world is, not necessarily from his uh, predecessor, is a, a number of huge questions. The business of nuclear proliferation, uh, Iran, uh, and, and, and the economic situation. Uh, all of these things, of course, have a degree of interrelationship. And I think to the extent that the Middle East particularly in the case of, of al-Qaeda and Islamic uh, extremism, uh, continues to bubble, continues to have these internal situations, uh, whether it's a degree of poverty, whether it's, it's a degree of repressive government, uh, whether it's a degree of, of uh, resurgent uh, Islam, you know, but, but, an, extreme, but a, a, an extreme version of it. Um, these seem to be the hallmarks of our time, and you know Hoffman is certainly uh, Bruce Hoffman's one of the most respected analysts uh, in CIA, and, and uh, I know he's advised the Obama administration, I think, uh, on the situation. So no, I I, I think he's dead on. I think uh, we we will be dealing with this for some time. Interesting. And before we conclude this interview. Um there is another person that I think is interesting and has uh, written and talked about these um, issues, and this is a former colleague of yours, Michael Scheuer. Um, uh, I think he was the head of the uh, CIA's anti-terrorist uh, unit for a while. Um, he has a radically different approach. He says quite openly that um, uh, one way to think about this would be complete disengagement. Uh, we just retreat from the Middle East. Um, we um, uh, don't intervene there anymore, and this might help solve these issues. Do you think this is an issue? Is it that easy? Can you just retreat and then you won't have to deal with these issues anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you can run away from, uh, I mean, given the, the world equities that are involved in the Middle East, that is, if, if you consider the prospect of, of Iran with a nuclear bomb capability, uh, if you consider the prospect of, of um, the resources in the Middle East, obviously I'm referring specifically to oil, uh, being simply cut off, being not available, if, if that were a prospect, uh, or being at risk for one reason or another, 
Um, I'm not sure what the gain is there. Uh, it, it would be nice to, t to uh, run away and hide or bury your head in the sand, but I, I don't know that we have, I don't know that we can consider the option of uh, turning away from these. I think willy-nilly we're engaged with the world. This is sort of like, uh, as you remember, there was a, a, a very strong isolationist movement in the United States, both before World War I and, and even World War II. In other words, the way to deal with these things is not engage. Um, and so uh, if, if what you're saying is true, and I didn't know that that was Michael's approach, um, that's, that's a form of isolationism, and I don't know we can relinquish our leadership role either. I think uh, the United States, its values, its influence, um, has certainly, I think, played a very positive role in the world, and, and certainly I would like to see that continued, and I don't know that relinquishing that role completely uh, would be a gain. Uh, thank you, Peter. Well, let me apologize to Michael Troy. I'm probably oversimplifying his position here, um, uh, but I like your analogy to the World War I and World War II era isolationists. Um, before we um, uh, sign off, let me just say that at SpyCast, we frequently get um, inquiries, especially from young people, about joining intelligence, what this is all about, and you've just uh, published, which I think is a, is a phenomenal book, um, on exactly this question for young people, uh, what is intelligence all about? What does it involve? It's called The Real Spy's Guide to Becoming a Spy. Um, I think it's great. I had the pleasure of working with you on this, and I just want to throw this out here to our listeners with a recommendation. Uh, so thank you again, Peter, for letting me host this session of SpyCast. It's been a great pleasure, and uh, look forward to working with you on many future SpyCasts. Okay, and Thomas, let me thank you uh, for uh, playing the role of interviewer. Uh, you've been in the background and contributed so much to SpyCast. My sense is we're going to get a lot of emails saying, keep Thomas, let Peter go. And that <laughs> I don't think so, but thank you. <laughs> so we'll see. But anyway, thank you so much. And uh, I hope this has uh, been of interest to you, uh, the listeners. And uh, we look forward to being back in touch uh, at our next broadcast. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.